In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Beliefs matter. They are connected to your physiology. We see this in the placebo effect. It's that strong relationship between expectations and physical health. On today's podcast, we discuss beliefs, mindsets, and the placebo effect. Morning, fellas. I recently discovered I have Disney+. Plus. So I, uh, I subscribed to Hulu because I like to, to watch live sports. And I didn't realize, but through there, I have access to Disney. And now with my two-year-old, he's discovered we have that. So he's kind of fallen in love with some of those Pixar animations. And uh, last night, I realized the catalog of old Disney movies are on there. So I sat down with him after dinner, and we started watching one of my favorite Disney movies, an old one. Can you guess what it is? Like how old? Like old, old, like old, old. 70s, 80s? Well, you have to show young kids Bambi. So, you know, the idea, the fear of losing their mother. You're in the right ballpark, <laughs> but it's not that one. And it's um, it's Dumbo. And I, I don't know why, but Dumbo's always resonated with me. Oh, my God. <laughs> Let's not get into the ears thing. <laughs> I never thought about that. So anyway. He's quacking and tripping over his ears. <laughs> So Dumbo has always been one of my, my favorite films. And, and as I was watching it last night, I realized this, this strong connection to, to psychology. And there was a lot happening in there. So I'm going to, if you recall, in the movie Dumbo, he got taken away from his mother. The magic feather. <laughs> That's right. Got taken away from his mother and he was depressed. He was very sad. They turned him into a clown. And then he went and spent some time with his mom when she was locked up in the cage. And at the feeding trough, they had antidepressants in there. That was, uh, that was booze. <laughs> that was booze. So after he was with his mom, they went back and he had the hiccups. And then he drank from that trough. And that's where they had the pink elephant episode. But after that pink ep- uh, elephant episode, that's the reveal. They wake up and they're, they're in a tree. And uh, it's Dumbo and his mouse friend, I think his name's Timothy, the two of them, they're hungover, they wake up, and, and the crows come over, and they start having a conversation with them. I love those crows. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they are uh, hilarious. But then they realize that they're up in the tree, and they have this, that moment of panic, and they fall down. So as they're, they're walking away, and the crows are all making fun of them, the crow comes over and like, grabs Timothy and brings him back and says, um, you know, you got up in that tree. Somehow you got up there. You just need to incorporate a little college psychology right so that's where they sing the song <laughs> that's where they, they they pluck the feather and then timothy has like that moment it's like oh yeah i got this and he convinces dumbo that he can fly because of the magic feather and it's the magic feather that allowed him to get up there in the first place and now that he has the magic feather they go and they you remember they try and push dumbo over the edge of a cliff and all the the crows are with them and he's just kind of bringing up all that dirt and then they realize, oh, well, you're, you know, maybe we'll try again next time. And that's when they're actually flying. So Dumbo believes that it's the magic feather that got him up in the air and made him fly. 
and the big reveal at the end of the movie is the magic feather was was fake it was it was him all along he had it within him he's able to fly and this feather was used as this mechanism to basically convince him that he has this uh, uh, not even convince him but to to kind of push him and, and push his body to perform in a certain way and i want to use that as a starting point for beliefs mindsets and the effect that things have physiologically over our body mm. that uh, are sometimes n- not you know within our control they're just happening they're mysterious they are very very mysterious yeah, yeah. so um I want to use that as a starting point, but I, I'm, I want to hear what you guys think about this because we can go many, many different different roads with this. And we've, in the past, Roger, you've brought up things about the human body being able to heal itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of looked at you like, here's another one of, you know, Roger's crazy, um, crazy things he wants to talk about. But in my mind, I was thinking, you know, going down to Oaxaca and you've got stones on your chakras and you're in a sound bath and you're healing yourself from a disease that you can no longer receive treatment for, but it's really, it's, it's more than that. Like if you truly do believe that your, your brain has this ability to heal yourself in certain ways, then why couldn't it go to an extreme if you're really able to tap into it? Well, let's just pull it back. Let's just talk about the placebo effect. Yeah. That's a good way to start. So it's funny because I don't want to talk about our uh, opinions right now, Mm -hmm. right? Because then it gets into, well, these are Roger's beliefs. Let's just step away from just our opinions or our beliefs on it. Like we understand that there is a placebo reaction and it's why randomized control blinded clinical trials are the gold standard because you need to define what those are again, just because it's come up in the past. And I always thought like the randomized controlled clinical trials were, you know, Somebody is not getting anything and they're said they're told you're not going to get anything and in, in, in your mind you're like, oh, I'm not being treated, so I might recover, I might not. Yeah, so just go through the process of when you say yeah. those yeah. studies. So blinded means that the researcher or whoever the clinician is and the patient are unaware whether or not they're receiving the active drug agent or medical intervention versus what would be a, a, a placebo effect. It's usually some sort of, of, of treatment that has no action. No oh, like a dummy it's pill. It's inert. A dummy pill is, okay. is a great example. And that you're, you're measuring the active treatment group versus the group that believes that they are getting the medical intervention. And it's been traditionally used to demonstrate whether or not the medical intervention is actually you know, effective or not. Mm-hmm. I was listening to this incredible podcast a couple days ago where a orthopedic surgeon had questions whether or not arthroscopic knee surgery for arthritis had any effect. They knew that those who went through the surgery felt much better, but he was uncertain whether it was actually the surgery itself. Could it be just the actual treatment Mm -hmm. the belief or the idea that the person has received something that improved their their pain and improved then and subsequently improved their quality of life and what he ended up finding was that the group that didn't actually get the surgery performed just as well as those who did as far as improved mobility decreased pain 
improve quality of life. We'll try to get that study in the mm-hmm. show summary. But what's interesting is that it's not just the belief. It's actually the entire rituals around it. Yeah. So they had to wheel this guy into the the OR. I mean, if you were getting the, the non-treatment, mm-hmm. you have to go into the OR. He would play something in the OR and follow the exact procedures as if he was doing the surgery. They would put... They would actually put um, holes in the person's knee to look like there was that arthroscopic incision. And that's how you had to measure it. So bottom line is this, is that people feel better if they believe they're being treated. And the question is, is how is science now advancing to understand this from greater depth and more perspective? How powerful is this idea and what is the mechanism that is occurring that we actually just believe something and then we make it true. Mm-hmm. Um, placebo uh, means uh, I shall please. And then we've talked about nocebo effect in this room. And that's the, the opposite end of the spectrum, which is to harm. So you can give somebody a treatment, but then maybe tell them they're not getting the treatment and they're going to experience a farther decline. And they may actually experience that decline because they believe they're about to be harmed by, it's like the opposite of a placebo yeah, effect. Yeah, it's a nocebo effect. And the easiest way to say it is someone believes that there's going to be a drug effect, a negative drug effect, yeah. like side effects even, yeah. or you're going to be harmed by the intervention, you're more likely than to experience that. Mm-hmm. So it's the power of the mind and body. Some things that we haven't really been able to tap into at this stage in our development. Before we progress this, I... I went on a walk yesterday and I thought about informed consent. And when it comes to getting a medication, doctors don't often provide all the potential downfalls, side effects, negative things. Rarely. Rarely. I think they rarely do. But I wonder if that's almost intentional. It's not intentional. But they, they, no, it's not if, intentional. If you, believe, <laughs> if, if you believe the placebo effect... Yes, it's, it's, not, it's not intentional. The reason why it's not intentional is because you'd be breaking the law. Um, you bring up an interesting philosophical kind of question yeah. around medical bioethics is would we improve conditions if we were able to prov- provide a, a placebo without that person knowing that mm-hmm. that's a, that's a placebo. So you remain, what you maintained in it was the expectancy effect. So well, the, doctors used to do that. And I believe the AMA wrote some guidelines around doctors providing prescribing placebos. So you're saying doctors would actually prescribe the pill, but wouldn't give the actual medication at first. They would, they would, you treat, know I mean? they would treat somebody with nothing first. That would be the first thing. I wouldn't say first, but I would say there are, there are doctors that have treated people with nothing because they believe just the act of receiving a treatment may potentially improve or provide relief. Okay. Which you can't do. You can't. You have even in these, even in the trials, someone might not know whether they're getting the active treatment or the placebo, but they're informed ahead of time that they're in a placebo-controlled trial and they might get the placebo. And so the 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 ethical question is: is if we know that a placebo can improve a condition, and they tend to be things around pain, uh, inflammation, psychological effects, like. I'll be, wa- I'll be very open about my belief that 
the active ingredient of an antidepressant is only belief. There is nothing about an antidepressant drug that has an antidepressant effect other than the placebo. And science supports that. So, but the question is, if we believe a placebo can positively impact pain or positively impact irritable bowel syndrome or maybe even autoimmune conditions, should that be part of a frontline treatment? And what happens if we inform somebody that we're giving you a drug, but the drug doesn't do anything? So they've had studies around this. Mm-hmm. They actually have, have developed studies where they tell the person that this is a, a placebo and people get better. Hmm. So th- why, why wouldn't... You're not, okay, so I'm very novice on this, but why are... What, if you have a drug that has side effects and the side effects could be really bad and you're a doctor, Mm -hmm. and you think that maybe mindset might cure, might be something that would help, why do they not allow a doctor to say, well, this is the medication that, you know, could help you, but at first they would give a pill that would just be a placebo without telling the patient? Is that just because of ethics? Law and ethics. A person has the, the legal and ethical right to make the most informed healthcare decisions. So there, you can't have coercion or you can't lie to somebody. You can tell them, you can tell them that you're going to, get, to provide them a treatment. Like let's say that we provided the, the treatment of um, the carnivore diet, okay? So Sean knows how I feel about the power of meat as far as nutrient density. Mm-hmm. So let's say I, I prescribe somebody the carnivore diet for, for six weeks. And I told them that I believed that this is going to cure their depression. Right there, we are providing a treatment. There's rituals around it. There's something that's prescribed. There's things they have to do. There's, a, there's contact with a, a, a professional. And the professional believes that making those changes is going to make them feel better. Right there, we know that a significant, there's going to be a por- portion of people who will overcome their depression based on the expectancy, the beliefs, the ritual, the clinical content, contact. It's powerful. So if I, did, if I set up a carnivore diet and an antidepressant group, from what I know from 30-plus years of research on antidepressants, my guess is in the short term, both of the groups are going to uh, show an effect. Mm-hmm. It's just to, to what extent and what percentage. But the carnivore group is probably going to do better long term. They're not going to experience any of the adverse side effects, and they're likely improving their health. You might even be targeting some nutrient depletion and other things that were part of the part of the person's lifestyle. So the ritual around the intervention appears to matter. So the bedside manner of the physician, Mm -hmm. how that person communicates and engages with their patients, 
the, the daily things that they need to do outside of the clinical contact or all part of this placebo effect in this very mysterious way. And I'd love to get into to this, but these things matter. Yeah. So, um, Sean, you shared a couple of podcasts with uh, Dr. Aliyah Crum. Yeah. And one of the things that she had said, or one of the studies that she was a part of, I believe, was an Italian doctor, Benedetti, and he's um, does invasive surgery. And of course, it's obviously painful. So they were testing the morphine drip and just exactly what you said, the bedside manner, author, uh, um, if the doctor did the drip, right? Now it's the same medication, but if the doctor came in and actually administered the, the morphine versus the, the other group was they had the little button where they could do it on their own, mm-hmm. right? The results were unbelievable. So in most case, in, in almost every case, the individuals that had the doctor come in said that the pain was, it was manageable. The people that were pressing the button and had it any time they could said that it wasn't working. <laughs> it's exactly what you just said. It's fascinating because go back to what it was it World War II. Henry Beecher. What, yeah. They would run out of morphine yeah. and they would give some of the soldiers a saline solution. Mm-hmm. Right. And the soldiers would then reveal that it's working and their pain would decrease. And that's how that was kind of discovered, really. Yeah, Henry Beecher discovered the placebo effect. He was a medic in World War II. And yeah, everything you said is correct. And he said, to his surprise, almost half of the soldiers responded that the inert saline solution actually reduced or erased their pain, which is kind of amazing. So it's the ritual. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's uh, it, it's mind-blowing, actually. And uh, Aaliyah Crum, uh, I kind of, I went... I got exposed to one of her stories. I was listening to a podcast maybe about two months ago and it led me down this path. And, uh, you know, I do the social media posts for Center for Integrated Behavioral Health at CIBHDR. Um, and on Fridays, I always like to do something that I just find a little more interesting. So it's not necessarily about, um, it could be about psychology, but it's just more about, you know, in that vein of things that just make you think and the last couple of weeks I've been doing things on, on mindsets and, uh, and a lot of her studies just really make me think about how much influence that has on not only from a medical, but also f- from psychology. You know, you, as you approach a certain situation, your willingness to want to get better or to believe you can get better must play a huge role on the success of a treatment especially when it comes to psychology. You know, what's fascinating with some of her research is because she's partnered with other researchers around, you know, beliefs about food, for example. And, you know, what they've learned is how you actually think about the food that you're eating, the diet has an effect on how your body responds to that food. Yeah. So an example would be if I, if I, if I have to eat healthier, and my mindset is, well, healthy foods are they're not tasty. Or they're not good, that kind of thing. Yeah, and you might have a negative, like, adverse reaction to it. So I have a I have a belief that, uh, obviously, carnivore diet that meat is has the the most nutrients and it makes me feel well. So my belief around that probably enhances my reaction or response to it. While I have beliefs that eating too many vegetables makes me feel unwell. Now, I've learned science around it that kind of influenced that because, um, because plants release uh, like defense chemicals. They're, like, they're not meant to be eaten, while fruits want you to eat because then you shit out the, 
the seeds right, and, then right. they, and then they grow. But like these plants will release these, these defense chem- chemicals that are gut irritants. And my gut hurts every time I eat vegetables. And I have no idea whether it's because I believe it or whether it's ex- really happening. You're expecting it to happen. <laughs> but, um, but the truth of the matter is, is that in all likelihood, those plants also have some you know, vital nutrients. And even those defense chemicals that are released, and maybe I believe that they're poisonous, but they're released in small doses, there's this process of hormesis and like it actually strengthens us. So if you believe that like the, the feeling in your gut would be, you are becoming stronger, mm-hmm. you'll become stronger. Let me tell another story here. Okay. <laughs> because I, I'll, I'm going to be the first to admit I'm a little in my head about this stuff more than anyone else. Oh, I, mm. I'll, I'll second that. I'll, <laughs> I, I, I'd agree with that. I concur. <laughs> uh, so October, you've heard about sober October, right? Yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever practiced sober? No. Yeah. I don't think it's the right time of year to do. <laughs> it's a bad time of year. <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of sports on. And so I, I decided to decrease my my drinking in October. So so he's down to one bottle per day. <laughs> <laughs> I like many others increased my drinking when the pandemic started and probably didn't move away from that not that i was a heavy drinker but often i I, often like i got used to the glass of wine or two at every night right and then maybe on the weekends indulging a little bit more Mm -hmm. and before i knew it i was looking forward to that glass of wine there was just you know it was relaxing it's a ritual it became a ritual. Mm-hmm. It was relaxing. And I was craving it. And so I kind of said, it's probably not a great thing for me. I did listen to some podcasts. The Huberman Lab podcast was one of them, which talked about the negative effects of alcohol, even just like one drink. He used the word poison. And so it got in my head, right? So I saw Sean at work. I'm like, I think I'm going to stop drinking. You know, even like a small amount of this alcohol is like not a good thing. Smacked him and I said, you shut up. Yeah, <laughs> you keep that stuff to yourself. <laughs> and he was telling me about his rituals, like at the end of the work day, like he and his wife might cook dinner, but then he enjoys the, the glass of wine and talked about just, hey, well, you got to live life a little bit, right? And that brought me back because I started to think more about then beliefs, because I've read a lot on the spiritual realm and the power of beliefs in the, in the past year. I've been talking mm-hmm. about manifestation with you guys, which I want to get into in this podcast. But I was starting to think like the idea that if I believe that one glass of wine or, you know, two, some moderate drinking, if I believe that it's poison, mm-hmm. then I'll probably experience it as poison and it'll probably have an effect on my life. You won't enjoy it as much. I won't enjoy it, but I, what we know from the placebo effect is it actually will harm my body. But if I see it as a way to experience life and to relax and enjoy something that, that tastes good without overindulging, obviously I think we all agree that overindulging is problematic, but Mm -hmm. like today I'm, there's a, like a chili festival down in the South side. You got to have some alcohol (laughs) for a chili festival. And it's like starts at noon. 
And it, wife, as long as it's twelve somewhere, how much chili can you eat? I don't know. You're <laughs> I was gonna say, you're, you're, what do you what do you do at a chili festival? It's really an excuse to day drink. <laughs> <laughs> All festivals are an excuse to day drink. But it's gonna it's gonna be beautiful today, right? We're looking at sixty seven degrees uh, yeah, and sunny in the northeast with the leaves changing. There's gonna be music. Mm-hmm. There's gonna be beer. So you want to be outside, right? So that's experiencing life. Right. So, but if I think about, oh my God, if I have this drink at noon, this is bad for me. That takes away from the experience. Or if you go tailgating or I meet my friends like Kelly out at the sports bar, cause we're going to watch Sunday night football. <clears throat> right. If I start thinking about, oh, what am I putting into my body? All this crap, you know, it takes away from the experience of life. Yeah, and you become a total bummer for everybody else because you keep talking about poison. (laughs) (laughs) And then what does life become, right? So ultimately, even when you talk about beliefs, we have beliefs about how we want to experience our life. And it goes beyond the automatic conscious thinking. It's really ingrained to us in like almost a subconscious way on what... What is the reason we are here and what are we doing and why are we doing it? Hmm. That's deep. That's deeper than I thought we were going to go today. But um, that, I mean, what you're talking about is mindset. So as you approach every situation, if you're going to approach it as I'm going to feel miserable because I'm going to be eating chili, I'm going to drink a beer, the rest of my day is going to be shot, I'm going to be tired, and I'm probably not going to be as productive tomorrow because today is just going to completely wipe me out. Then your whole weekend is going to be crap. Because you've set the expectation for you to be withdrawn, tired, and not productive. But if you approach this afternoon as, I'm going to be out in the sun, I'm going to be surrounded by energy and friends, and it's going to be great. I'm going to eat some some chili. Uh, I'm going to have a beer. I'm going to still you know, be disciplined about it so I can have a productive day tomorrow, and I can get a lot of things done this afternoon after we leave the chili festival then you'll go and you'll approach that day and the next day with that type of mindset. It's all about how you frame things. So the core beliefs that you have about anything, um, they orient the way that we think, which alters the motivation that you have. Well, it even probably goes much deeper than that. It it almost seems like that our beliefs about something impact us on this neurological and physical level. Yes that impacts how our body reacts and responds, even when we're not consciously thinking about so it. So let's go into that. We, we started talking about Ali Crum. She's the, like a psychologist at Stanford. I believe it's the Mind and Body Lab. And, Which uh, is so cool. I, yeah, if, I, if I could pick a career now, at this point in my life, I just want to go and just work there. Totally. As a researcher, I'll say, I'm volunteering. Give me a stipend. Actually, I need to get paid because I've got bills to pay, but, <laughs> but I would love to do that stuff. I just find it fascinating. And I believe it probably leads people to, to leave these incredible lives because they keep revealing things that are very insightful and they all adjust the way that they're living their lives. You could pitch the idea if you, if through <clears throat> email and maybe they'll hire you on the effects of chili festivals <laughs> on people. So guess, <laughs> guess what? I actually believe chili and beer can actually enhance the amount of money you can make. Go on. Yeah, I want to hear this. I'm because just, I'm really... <laughs> I'm just choosing to believe it. 
Oh, right now? Right now. Oh, I thought this was something that was just standard. No, so positive association. So let's say if I, let, I'll take you down the, the logic of this, right? So if I find balance in my life, right? And that's another concept that we can talk about with beliefs. But let's say I find balance, that I'm going to, I'm going to exercise well and, and eat well and moderate my alcohol most of the time. And I'm going to continue to be an obsessive academic. And I'm going to really love the work that I do and engage fully with all my clients. And then I'm going to also seek balance and I'm going to get away from all those things and I'm going to relax and enjoy the sunshine and eat food that I, that's tasty and try different beers and engage with the energy in the world around me. Well, then what I'm doing is I'm embracing experiences in my life, which is going to set me up to embrace new experiences. And that new experience is going to thrust me forward in order to, to, to attempt to do new things that are going to bring new people, new ideas uh, and, and new opportunities into my life because I'm embracing it in a certain way. So it's all related. The mindset in which you choose to approach your life is going to directly influence that quality of, that, of your life because our life is completely created in our minds. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that. Um, can we go back to uh, the, the physiological component? Okay. So yeah. we, we started going into it. There, um, the milkshake study. I don't, I don't know if you um, guys have listened to anything about that. So That was interesting. That was fascinating. It was. And uh, the, she talked about ghrelin. So ghrelin is um, your body's, it produces, I guess it's a hormone. I'll include the link in the show summary. But ghrelin is what satiates you. So if your ghrelin goes up, your ghrelin goes down, it's in your bloodstream. Uh, you're either still hungry or you're full. So that's the the chemical in the body that will tell you that you need to eat more or eat less. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that they labeled the milkshake, either as indulgent, decadent, and rich, or healthy, nutritious, and fat-free, affected the ghrelin um, in a person's bloodstream after they drank that milkshake. And I believe the milkshakes were either exactly so, the same or they did like whole randomized control things. So they had different versions. And so she, she does have a Ted talk for the listeners. Oh, I, would, I would encourage you guys because she shows all these studies and you see it, but what they did was they, they convinced, they paid $75 for these students to come in and just drink a milkshake, a healthy milkshake. And they actually created a poster and the, um, the caloric count and everything on it. One was in the, the healthiest milkshake you'll ever have. And then they brought him in the next week and they created this like ridiculous 700 calories per, you know, pure fat, pure deliciousness and everything. But it was the exact same, <laughs> it was the exact same shake. So the mindset just simply shifted and they, th this, they saw the study of, what is it called again? Quellen? Uh, Grelin. Grelin. They saw the difference in that. It was huge. It's fascinating. Yeah. And how do you explain that? Beliefs. Like your, what you believe or what you understand changes your body. We are that well connected with our mind and our body. We don't know what we're even capable of doing yet. So that goes back to the, the whole idea of like healing yourself. Yes. So if the way that you're framing a milkshake can connect with your gut to the point that your body is producing less or more ghrelin to satiate you, then what other things are happening within our body that if we just focus our energy, and 
maybe not focusing the energy, but convince ourselves in a way to manipulate. You can't convince yourself though. That's the thing that's... Yeah. So we are so limited in the Western world, right? Um, We're not really connected to, to cultures and traditional ideas that maybe have been passed down through generations in other like Eastern or South American or other cultures. Like there is a wisdom, maybe it's the American Indians in certain cultures that gets passed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. I think in the Western world, we're much more influenced by uh, our modern society and our modern culture, which is often really industry driven. So it's the sell thing. So the, the marketing and advertising community really has a brilliant understanding of the psychology of human nature and then uses it to their advantage to sell things, mm-hmm. whether that's classical conditioning and the, and associations or expectancy beliefs, you know, like Gatorade, right? Gatorade's horrible for you. It's a sugar drink, right? But since all the athletes down Gatorade and it sits up there on the podium during press conferences and it's this great, uh, you know, marketing flooding the American public with the electrolytes and it's fueling you. And I remember like looking at the green goes through the body. It's <laughs> like people actually believe it enhances performance, but it actually decreases performance because of its high sugar content. Mm-hmm. Hydration improves performance, mm-hmm. but the sugar content decreases performance. But Throughout the course of history, different cultures would be able to find that different things and rituals are able to create this amazing healing effect. It could be an herb, or it could be a plant, or it could be just a dancing and a ritual or heat. Now, maybe all those things have a some positive response on the human body, but it's more likely the idea or the belief that this is influencing us. That is the major contributing factor to this. Yeah, at a, at a very um, amateur level, uh, I just think of my son like hurt his finger, and he said like he had a, a cut, and he was like holding, it and he was like whining, and he came over to me, and he's like pointing at his finger like he was hurt, and I was like, hold on, let me see it, and he's like, look at, it. and he goes, kiss it. So then I, I kissed it, and I go, it's all better, and he goes, all better, and he walked away. So like, I mean, that's very simple, but same same concept, same yeah. principle. Well, I, you know, I did this very early with, with my son. We kind of grew up in a, in a mindset around sports, right? You used it in a podcast, suck it up, mm, right? Yeah. And it's this idea that, that pain is really kind of something that's created in the mind. And we see this with the varying degree of, of pain thresholds. And there's a difference between being hurt and being injured, right? If you're injured, you can't perform like my son just broke his leg trifold fracture into his ankle there's no way he could perform it's a broken bone but there are other times that you're you're hurt but you can still perform and you have to push through it and then there's the idea if you don't believe you're injured then you can continue to to perform and i remember one wrestling practice my son said his knee hurt but i saw him walking i'm like your knee's fine just go out and wrestle and he went through the entire practice and the next morning his knee was blown up and he he tore his retinaculum which is basically ripped the kneecap 
off of the whatever it's connected to the bone like mm-hmm. he wrestled an entire practice with his kneecap on the side of his knee only because he believed he wasn't hurt <laughs> and un- and it's just the perception of of pain mm-hmm. and this is a really important takeaway from this podcast is if you believe it is so it is if you believe it is so it is so from a psychotherapy perspective what my client believes about themselves their lives their future is truth they will live it they will feel it they will experience it and why cognitive behavioral therapy, I believe, has shown positive effects is in some regard, you're trying to alter that. You're trying to alter what they believe and create new experiences. And then you add that on with the enhanced placebo effect, the rituals, the clinical contact, the homework that they do. So you can see why psychotherapy is an effective treatment because you're trying to change the way someone believes that their that their lives can uh, are, are affected in certain ways and so the the question is always how do we change mindsets like if we know this to be true what is the work that actually has to be done to influence it we were talking down, downstairs before coming up here, remember, and I said, people are really, when you say placebo and you talk about studies with pills and medication, people believe that exists. But when you bring it up in terms of the way that we think, like mindsets, and you say, if you believe this and you, and you truly believe it, things will change for you, that is very hard to get across to people. They tend not to want to believe it. So they would have to believe what we're saying on this podcast first before actually. And what influences those beliefs? So in one of the, um, the papers that I read uh, from that, um, uh, Ali Crum was the placebo effect mindset. And then there was a statement that kind of stuck. Uh, it says, a patient in pain may have the specific expectation that a treatment will relieve their discomfort. However, this expectation may hinge on the broader mindset that their illness is manageable. So it's basically all these things that have happened in your life, your life experiences, the ways that the way that you were raised, maybe your experience with a family member that have may have may have gone through a treatment, or just the simple act of taking a pill and the color of that pill, whether it worked in the past or it didn't work in the past, will impact your Um, your ability to have a negative or a positive reaction in the future. So all these things really shape us. So how do you reframe the mindset for everybody to like forget about everything you've, you've experienced if it was negative or if you've had poor treatment results with other psychologists or if you've been through therapy multiple times and you've been failed, those things are really framing your willingness or your ability to be open to improvement when you start a new treatment. So how do you, how do you reframe everything for them? One of the things that I've really been open about with training psychologists here at our center is I talk about the expectations that you as the therapist are a major influencer in whether somebody gets better. 
And it gets dumbed down in the psychotherapy outcome literature and in the training. They talk about it as the power of relationship. And that's a limited way of, of viewing this because the relationship that exists in a therapy session or therapy treatment is unlike any other. You can't mimic it in any other way in, in the world. Like I can't approach my clients in the same way I make friends and keep friends. I can't approach my clients in the same way that I manage relationships in my life with my family or my colleagues or my friends. It's completely different because it's a one-sided relationship. It's a one-sided intimate relationship. That one person reveals a lot of personal, intimate details about their lives, but the therapist does not. So your client doesn't know you personally. So there's no balance there. So there's, an, there's a power differential that exists. So the relationship tends to grow around certain variables or factors. One of them is the client's expectation or belief that the therapist can help them. Well, then we have to ask ourselves, what influences that? Well, their knowledge base, their confidence, their bedside manner, which is what in the medical world. So like how that person relates to them, their kindness, their compassion. So the safety that exists. So basically that person's willingness to trust the person in front of them and to believe that they are acting in their best interest. So I do believe that requires a high degree of skill and knowledge because you can't fake it. If you are not passionately invested in knowing a lot about the human psyche and the human experience and not and if you're not passionately connected to the outcome that exists, meaning does that person get better? Well, you're not going to be able to fake that and the client is going to be able to experience it, which is going to lower all those curative factors. So is it, it's not really about the individual techniques that one uses, although that can be a variable because this more skilled technician of a therapist is also likely to enhance those expectation effects and also be perceived as more knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. Were you going to go into something else? You made me think of something and it angers me. Um, every week, you know, we're getting calls from people trying to, to get appointments here to see one of our clinicians. And often it comes in, in from a, another psychologist, almost a, a referral. And it's, I've been seeing this client for a period of time and I can't help them. You know, I imagine when you're in a relationship with a, with a clinician and you're, and you're talking to them and you're, and you're trying to get better and that person across from you says, your problems are more than I can handle. I'm not the right therapist for you. I need to send you somewhere else. Doesn't that set you back even further? As a client, I would believe that frames things to me as, oh, I'm severe this person can't help me. I need to go to somebody else. And then you're starting a new relationship with a clinician and you're at a deficit because someone's already told you your problems are so extreme that I, I can't help you. So how does, how would, how would you approach that situation to reframe that client and say, you, you can get better and you will get better. And I'm sorry that somebody said that to you. That's wrong for them to frame it in that way. 
Well, it does go back to belief. So think about what that clinician is doing. That clinician is communicating that, that there's something that is you know, wrong with that person that's different than who they usually work with. It's you're too severe. Yeah. You're too mentally disabled. You're broken. You're, I'm incapable of helping someone like you because you're so sick. And that's that same belief system of like, well, you need to go get a referral with this psychiatrist to take this drug even though that person knows nothing about the drugs. Mm -hmm. But I'm just going to diffuse that responsibility and send it to someone else because there's something about your pathology that is too severe that we have to do something else. Yeah, those beliefs matter. And it makes me angry too because these people are, are going to refer clients to our, our center. They come, into, they come in to see me and say, well, my psychologist uh, suggested I, have, I go into a higher level of care and they referred me here. We're not a higher level of care. We're outpatient. We're just, we're just like that other clinician. We just know what we're doing. And, these, and it's, it's these ideas. Like, what is your belief about human nature? What is your belief about someone who is suffering? What is your belief about your ability to help somebody? And I have certain beliefs. I don't, I'm better with clients who are struggling more. And I'm not as strong with people who were just going through normal adjustment. Why do you think that is? Because of my belief in my ability to be able to enhance and improve and help that person change. The person who's just going through an adjustment, I believe I'm mean meaningless. That's my belief. Everything I've learned, everything I've dedicated into my life, everything I know there's nothing really I need to do to help them other than to be in their presence. Mm. It's just my presence. And so then I have a thought, anyone can do this. Yeah. So then it decreases my attention, <laughs> my passion, and my focus. So all those other curative factors, mm -hmm. they're not as present. But if somebody you know, went through some traumatic experiences and is really suffering, might be severely depressed or post-traumatic stress or might be suffering from an eating disorder... I believe I can help them. I believe I have the knowledge, the skill set, and it's why I'm put on this earth. So it changes everything. I got an intense focus, compassion. Uh, I'll continue to read. I continue to study and read in order to serve them. And then that's my motivation. So you're seeing um, there's beliefs that are, that are being uh, exposed that my quality of my life improves if I can help people who are really suffering. But then if you have a therapist who believes they can't do that, right? I can't help people who are really struggling. I don't know how to. I can't. And so that impacts how they relate to that person. And it's certainly problematic in our field because they'll accept clients and they don't have that confidence or that skill set. And someone takes the time and opens themselves up tells their story, tries to trust you. And then when they really need some direction, it's not received. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's harmful. Yeah. Sean, does that happen a lot where you get those, you feel those phone calls? Well, I don't, I don't do the intake process, okay. but I have a, a report so that we can you know, shift. Well, basically we're, we're assigning um, clients to clinicians and, I always ask for, I want to understand the referrals. So the people that are coming in, where are they coming from? How are they finding us? Just um, so that we understand 
where things are, are flowing in. And it's probably like one or two a week. It, it'll be an outside psychologist. Um, and then during the intake process, there's some things that are learned. And uh, yeah, it happens quite often. So I want to go, can we go back to the placebo effect and then talk about more with behavior and things like that? And I also want to transition to meditation, manifestation. Oh, that, that's what I'm getting at. Okay. But can I, so as you guys were talking about this, I came on today because I really wanted to learn about it. I just kind of wrote down that this, the placebo effect at this point is basically how our mind develops expectations after it is primed mm. through words, images, experiences, Prior knowledge, in essence, the placebo effect is a pre-game mental state for what you are about to experience. I like the word primed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's key. I just, yeah, but I also want to make sure we're aware of the complexity of that because we can be primed through our culture. Yeah. There, uh, there's so many factors yeah. leading up to the actual event that are influencing whether or not you're going to have a positive or negative reaction. So not everybody's, you know, we're, we're all unique human beings, right? And our personality traits, all that stuff influences. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So I've gotten into meditation definitely the past year. And in my meditation, before I start, I, I, I tend to do some, you know, breathing to start um, and in, in green actual chakras. So, you know, I've been able to learn about the different chakras in, in the body. Here comes the stones. Yep. Here comes going to lay down with some crystals. Can you just explain? I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> so you're using these, these terms and I want to know. I, I know. I, I don't want to get into it because it's probably a whole I, other podcast, it probably but let, let's, it's just this idea, ancient wisdom that there are certain like energy, uh, pockets, areas. And that's, that's the chakra. It's called the chakra. Okay. And Imagine it goes down that, your yeah. like your your meridian. Is your meridian? It's like, down your meridian. Yeah. I okay. think so you're using a lot of jargon here. The middle of your body. There's certain. I got you. There's the, the heart chakra. Yeah. You know. There's so, but it's just it's it's one way I learned how to do meditation. So it's just a, a, a tensing and a release and a tensing and release. And I tend to do it in the cadence of my breath. It's a good way for me to just start my meditation because it brings me right to the present moment. And it changes my physiology. So I do feel different after I tense, release, and I slow down my breathing. And then the next thing I, I, tend, I have been doing is I've just been um, kind of meditating on this idea of asking for wisdom, right? So it's just asking the universe or putting that out into the universe, a desire or an intention for wisdom, and I've done that over the past year or so. And books keep getting placed in front of me. Opportunities exist for continued learning. And the same exact messages are repeated over and over and over and over again. In probably the 10 books that I've read, where sometimes a client will come in and repeat the same message to me. And so I'm pretty secure on certain things that are really uh, valuable to enhance my life and the lives of people around me based on that wisdom. And one of them is that we inherently have within us a, a, a knowledge and a connection and an intuition on what is best. 
but it is our minds and our learning that get in the way. And so the survival mechanism is that brain trying to predict the next bad thing that could happen or judgments or evaluations. And if you learn to quiet that, you can then pay attention to what is actually in your heart. And there are, I know there are other people out there who meditate, who understand exactly what I'm talking about, that when you're in that state and you slow down your mind and you are present and you are quiet, that this innate wisdom is revealed in, that, in those moments. And some of the things about the, that innate wisdom, after it happens, I'll text you guys sometimes, right? That this is what I believe. And I believe right now that we're supposed to be having this podcast. I believe that the podcast in itself is going to be a vehicle to communicate valuable information for people to improve their lives. I believe that this podcast and the other ventures that are going to come from doing this work are part of a, a natural evolution, evolutionary process that is needed of, in the human race to continue to evolve, whether that's a spiritual connection to improving the health, to changing the way cultures relate to each other. It's part of a much greater plan. Did I think that? I can't tell you I thought that. I never thought that stuff before. But once I sat in meditation, I began to experience it. And now, so I've, I've met with other people who seem to have uh, maybe a higher level of consciousness or frequency in various aspects of my life, people I would have never went and saw or met before, and then they would re reiterate the same things to me, the same messages. And one of the assignments that was provided to me from somebody I trust was just to sit down with a journal and free write. Don't think. Put your pen to the paper and just write and then see what happens and so I started doing that this summer and I have this I have this journal in fact if we stop the podcast I can go get it and just read what went pen to paper do you want to do that we can do that mm, no maybe we, we revisit at another time why I don't know I think it's going to be some ancient it's not. language. <laughs> it's, it goes back to the power of, of, of beliefs. So it came out without me thinking. All right. Okay. Let's hit right. pause. Yep. You go get it. All right. We're back. All right. Roger, you went and you got your Indiana Jones. Um, <laughs> and I noticed. Leather bound. <laughs> notice right off the bat at the top of the page, it says 12 o'clock chili festival. <laughs> That's wisdom. <laughs> So the truth of the matter is I had no idea whether, whether this was going to work, right? Free writing without thinking, just put pen to paper and write down and see what's there. Now, I always did it after my own rituals. So my rituals were to, to exercise. And then my ritual was to meditate in the sun in the morning to get the morning sun. And then I would pull this out and I would sit down and I would just put the pen to paper. And... I don't even remember writing it, so when I read it, it's kind of a little uh, new agey, but... How do we know it's not plagiarized? It, it's def I wouldn't go on air <laughs> and say, 
that that this came out of this exercise. And you know, for people who've known me throughout my life, it's not necessarily who I am, right? This is not something that's um, that's comfortable for me. But I'm trying to. Is it poetry? Push myself past a kind of a comfort zone. It's not. A, it's not a sonnet, is this it? Is, <laughs> so I'm just Jack Handy. <laughs> so I'm actually just looking at deep, this. Deep thoughts. <laughs> This is deep thoughts. Can you do it in a deep thoughts voice? No. No, you want to be serious about yeah. it. Yeah. All right. All right. And I don't want to make fun of this because I would I do. <laughs> I know you do. So I, I just wrote it just came out. It says the mystical is all around you and opportunities are around the corner. Stay true to yourself and your principles and you will be protected. Start the process of allowing yourself the freedom to take risks, to be great in this life. No limitations exist other than the limitations you've placed on yourself. The universe is listening as you are listening. You would never use the word mystical. Go to to another random page. Yeah. This is a moment that transcends all time and space, connecting to the greater. Now I have some bad handwriting. <laughs> I can't read this word. I'll just start again. This is a moment that transcends all time and space, and connecting to the greater world, maybe, allows for manifestation of your purpose. Your soul's purpose will prevail. Every opportunity is placed in front of you to serve your highest self. Your prayers are answered and you will protect those who need help through courage and wisdom. Overcome your fear-based self and you transcend to greater heights. You have been doing a good job. You will achieve the reality you seek, you are protected, trust in, stay grounded, own the moment. Mm, wow. that That's actually really deep. And there's a trend in, in, the, in the words that he uses. A lot of connection, transcending, moving on. Um, uh, these are uh, words that I don't use in my typical day to day. No, life. Right. And it, there's a strong connection between the physical world and the world of the unknown. So, <laughs> should I do another one? Well, well one more. We'll do one more. Last one. Account. Let go of trying to control your fate, but rather embrace each moment as I provide for you with the lessons of the past being your teacher. Everything will work out as planned. Faith is the answer, as has always been. Hmm. Let the lessons of your past be your teacher. I like it. So, <clears throat> so tell me what doing that, by the way, I started all this with edge thoughts because that's what I do every morning. I just want to put down a side note, but do, doing that, how often do you do it every day? And do you make sure you do it at the exact same time? So this is this is absolute routine. You know, talk. I want to know a little bit more about that. No, I don't do it every day. Okay. In fact, I'm not, I, I haven't been doing it recently, just because I feel like the demands on my time have been much greater, and I want to get my exercise in or my meditation. Or sometimes I just have to get up in the morning and work. So it's usually a morning routine for me. 
but I, I want to do it more. Um, in fact, what's very kind of therapeutic for me is actually just to go back and read what I wrote mm. because it's not something that I, you know, that's not my automatic typical day-to-day thinking. But if I go back and read it, there's great wisdom there. And remember I said that came from quieting my mind. And so I'll tell another little story. Uh, I had a, a client this week in session tell me, um, I feel this urge uh, that I have to share this with you. This is her saying it to, okay, to me. Yep. Um, and I don't know why, but she said, I'm pointing to my heart right now. It's in here, not up here. Now I'm pointing to my head. Mm-hmm. It's in here, not up here. And I asked her, you know, wh- when did she have the inspiration to, to tell me that? And she said, well, after our last session, it's been with me all week, and I just have to tell you. Now, the interesting part of it is, you know, I've been meditating on wisdom. That's the third time somebody said it to me. She was the third. So when you ask for something or you believe that something that maybe the, the universe or is, is working for you in some particular way, if you're going to try to like enhance your connection to things that are around you, Certain things happen that are kind of mysterious that I can't really make sense of. What I wrote in there, I can't make sense of it. It came from somewhere. Maybe it was a subconscious idea of wisdom that I've already known. But the more I try to think about something, plan, intellectualize, control, the worse the outcome for me. Mm -hmm. And I told that to Sean this week (laughs) um, because we start, you know, we're always talking about we have a mission. And our, our mission is to, is to grow our center. Our mission is to share these ideas. Um, I want to talk about harms that are certainly created in the modern-day mental health, mental health and healthcare settings that exist. But I think the, also the greater message is always how do you create the best life possible? And if it's going to the south side and having chili and, and beers and, and fully embracing and enjoying that experience on a particular day, then that's it. It's that full respect for people to live their lives um, in a manner which they, they don't suffer. And when I, when I read that, that wisdom, it's, it's, it's that constant message, right? That everything is going to be okay and em- embrace it. And what is, what is that that relieves anxiety and worry? And if you read the literature on near-death experiences, or you talk to people who are spiritual, or you talk to people who meditate, they all say the same exact thing. There's nothing to worry about. Everything in life is here to serve you. Everything that happens to you is to serve you. The pain, the trauma, Mm -hmm. the loss, the good, the bad, everything is a lesson. It is there to serve you. If you believe that, I'm not saying try to make yourself think it. If you believe it, your life will be transformed. And I have no doubt about that. 
Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.